0: Hey, everybody. Mike here. So glad you're tuning in. Hope you're having a great week wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Thanks for uh, letting, us be, letting us be a part of your life. Uh, thank you for those of you that like, subscribe, support. Um, man, you, you guys are such an amazing community and so very blessed to be a part of it today. So next, uh, next podcast, I want to start a, a series on um, how to be political in, in, uh, in these days. Um, it's just so nasty and so, so crazy. And it just, uh, it seems like it's getting worse and worse and worse. And so, um, I want to uh, start a series that's different than the Jesus in politics series that we did, uh, earlier, um, in the podcast. I want to, I want to look at a bit, uh, at how the gospel itself is political and how it informs how we are political. Um, and, uh, so I, I hope that'll be helpful. I'm kind of excited about it. But today, uh, I, I starting to lead a a little uh, Bible study for some college guys who lead young life in the Columbus area. And, uh, they wanted to go through the book of Genesis, which is uh, one of my favorites, um, particularly Genesis one through three. And I've always dreamt about doing a um extended sort of study in Genesis 1 2 and 3 I just find it so fundamental and so interesting and um and so I was preparing for that and there are a couple of things that I came across uh that I'd never heard before and and were totally mind-blowing at least for me so this is a Bible geek episode but it, it has some massive implications in terms of how you understand Christianity's relationship to science. And uh, because that's one of the huge issues in Genesis, how do we understand the book of Genesis in its relationship to the accounts it gives of the origins of the universe versus 21st century Western accounts of the origins of the universe and how do all those reconcile? So uh, a couple of preliminary questions. First, uh, I want to always remind us why it is that we study the Old Testament. And, uh, you know, there are a couple very obvious examples uh, to kind of give about why it is that we study it. And one that comes to mind is uh, watching Infinity War. Uh, My kids, at least my oldest son, uh, and my daughter too, my wife, um, we are uh, Marvel uh, movie fans and have very much enjoyed the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, And so we went to see Infinity War opening night. And if you haven't seen it, I mean, that, that movie is like the culmination of 10 years and 18 or 19 other movies. I mean, it's incredibly... I mean, this the whole world has been you know very thoroughly, incredibly knit, uh, knit together. And uh, I would imagine, as I was sitting there watching the movie, I was thinking of somebody who'd never seen any of the previous Marvel movies, and they walked into Infinity War, um, what their experience would be like. And obviously... The movie's clear enough in its basic elements um, that you know who the good guys are you know who the the bad guy is you know what the conflict seems to be about you, but but so you got the basics no question about it but you miss so much detail and you're liable to misinterpret a lot of the detail because um, you, you're not familiar with how the basics have been fleshed out previously. And so when we come to the Old Testament, the the particularly the first five books, uh they kind of introduce us to the fundamental storyline, the the fundamental plot conflict, um the the fundamental promises that Jesus both contributes to and uh brings to completion. And Uh, I love how one scholar puts it, and I think this is very, very true. The Gospels of Jesus teach us how to read the Old Testament, and at the same time, the Old Testament teaches us how to read the Gospels. Um, We learn to read the Old Testament by reading backwards from the Gospels, and at the same time, we learn to read the Gospels by reading forwards from the Old Testament, and Jesus... Uh, Jesus is the one who gives us permission to do this. In in the end of Luke, Jesus is walking along with two of his disciples who are dejected. He's been crucified. They don't recognize him along the road. And Jesus says he opens their minds and begins to explain to them how the law and the prophets were actually about him. And um, one of the very interesting things is, is that when you get to the Gospels, Yes, you can get the basic storyline and the basic um, points and ethical teaching, and yes, of course. But there's so much that you miss, and there's so much that you're liable that we are liable to misinterpret because we haven't we haven't seen the prequel. We we're not operating in the world. I mean, like the biggest critique of Infinity War is that it assumed uh, a basic knowledge of all the other movies, and and exactly. I mean, the the Gospels. When you study the life of Jesus, it assumes. Um, uh, a working knowledge of the world view, the promises, the conflicts, uh, the plot lines of 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 what had come before. So, one of the reasons we read the Old Testament is to familiarize ourselves with the scriptures that Jesus was using and referring to, and fulfilling, and extending, and all all sorts of things. Uh, the second reason that we read um, we read the Old Testament. Is that um, and the Old Testament is is comprised of lots of little bitty stories, but they begin to add up to a much larger plot line over the course of pages and pages and pages it 's kind of like um, I heard one scholar use this example it 's kind of like the chronicles of narnia c s lewis 's you know quote children 's books although they 're incredibly spiritual and and there 's a ton of depth to them. Um, there's the, the main character 's name is Aslan, and he 's the Christ figure, and he 's this big lion. Um, and even though Aslan isn't on all of the pages and isn't in all of the stories, uh, the book very clearly, uh, the books, very clearly, the little stories, very clearly all build a world in which Aslan is the central figure. And so so yes although you know you're looking in the Old Testament you're like what what are these numbers and these genealogies and holy cow what's God doing here and I don't understand this and, and no question it raises just as many questions as it answers but when you get to the gospels and you open the gospels and you read about Jesus attending feasts and keeping the sabbath and um And arguing with other Jews about the nuances of the law, I mean, this is all within the context of the Old Testament. So I just don't think you can set the Old Testament aside. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that we don't read it with Jesus in view. Um, It just means that if you're going to understand the kind of the worldview of Jesus, you have to have the Old Testament in mind. Um, its promises, its uh, its worldview. I mean, all of that and that and, and that allows Jesus to make so much more sense. So, um, when you get to the Old Testament, one of the one of the fundamental things that we do is uh, that we allow it to dictate the terms. Right? We we are consistently. Uh, against a very flat reading of the Bible where we just pick it up in English and say, well, okay, so here's this verse in Genesis. God must mean we do this. And here's this verse in Leviticus, so we do this. And then here's this verse in Matthew, and then here's this verse in Paul. And you just kind of take it all flatly and all literally, and there's no room for nuance or literary um, literary genre. Uh, We're very much against that because uh, that doesn't honor how the text has come to us. And so when we get to um, uh, the book of like Genesis, you, you, we realize we're dealing with different kinds of literature than what we're normally used to, and um, and so uh, we I'll spare you the gory details about you know what Genesis what kind of literature Genesis turns out to be, but it becomes very very important um, in uh, when we get to kind of chapter one, which is this very famous kind of poetic narrative about uh the origins of the universe. And and so I, I want to focus kind of on one um one very big important distinction that I've I'd heard before, but then I um then I began to read about it and was like, oh my goodness, this if this is true, this really changes um some of the text. Now I'm getting this primarily from a guy by the name of John Salhammer who uh, is an incredible New, uh, Old Testament scholar. He's written an Old Testament commentary. He's written several books. But but one book he's uh, written that I've just began to devour um, is a book called Genesis Unbound. And uh, this guy, uh, Paul Salehammer, or Paul Paul's a guy I worked with, John Salehammer. Um, John Salehammer... Uh, does some things um, and and considers Genesis 1 and 2 in some ways that I, I think are completely mind-blowing and have proved influential to some other Old Testament scholars that I, I know personally and that I have huge respect for. So I think there's something to this. I'm going to do my best to explain it, but here's the payoff. The payoff that that of the pain we're just going to go through uh, here in the next couple of minutes, the payoff is... That a lot of the questions and debates we have about Genesis 1 um, aren't, not only aren't answered in Genesis 1, but the author is purposefully not trying at all in any way, shape, or form to convey the kind of information that we're looking to Genesis 1 to provide. And so I, I think there is a massive lifting of pressure uh, of, for, for people of faith to try to square. Uh, cosmic origins with uh, the Genesis, a very literal reading of the Genesis one account. I think the Genesis one account is, um, I think it is authoritative. It is inspired, uh, absolutely. But I don't know anymore if it's trying to provide uh, science or not in um, in 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 a very narrowly construed uh, understanding of the term. So, the Genesis one one says, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse two, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then verse three, God begins this cycle where God says, let there be light. There was light. God saw the light was good. He separated it from the darkness. He called the light day, the darkness he called night. There was evening, there was morning, the first day. Uh, and, and thus begins this repetitive like six day cycle where God seems to, to be creating and fashioning the earth and the heavens. Now, the big debate, What and, I, and again, I'm just riffing on Sailhammer here, but, but I thought it was worth sharing uh, because for people like me who grew up when uh, the evolution and creation debates were really hot and and thick and like divisive, um, we we realize we've really spent a lot of time uh, arguing over the wrong kind of thing. So so this is worth setting up. One of one of the big questions that Sailhammer addresses is is verse one a preview of the rest of the verse, or? Uh, or like a title for the rest of of chapter one, not the rest of the verse, but the rest of the chapter, is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, a summary of what God's about to do. And then he begins creating the heavens and the earth in verse two. Now the earth was firmless and void and whatever. Um, Or it, it, it is literally verse one telling us that's when God created the heavens and the earth. God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning period. That was his creation. That was the whole thing. That was him creating the animals and the, and the heavens and, um, and everything in between all except human beings. Is that, is the, the big event is the Genesis one describing two different events. The first event is the creation of the heavens and earth in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then there's a separate event in verse 2. Now, the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit was hovering over the deep. And then God said that there be light. So, are we describing one event or two? Does Genesis 1.1, is that the title or the preview of what's coming through the rest of the chapter? Or is that its own separate thing? Now, Sailhammer argues and and he argues two things first he argues that these are actually two separate events that in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth is actually telling us when and how god created the heavens and the earth he did it in the beginning and notice that he doesn't tell us how he did it or how long he took to do it he just there was a period of time called the beginning in which god created the heavens and the earth and that would explain then in verse 2 why there's already an earth. <laughs> um so 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 going to argue first that these are two separate events. He's going to do something in verse 1 that that creates the universe and then do something in verse 2 that that does something with the universe, particularly a p- piece of land that God has already created in verse 1. I I, I hope you're tracking with me. And this is making sense. So Salehammer's first argument is that, th- that the first verse of the Bible is actually describing the creation of the universe. Separately from what God's about to do in verse 2. And so, um, so in verse 1, in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. Now, there, there are two, and I'm sure he gives much more thorough defenses of this in other places. But it, I picked up two reasons um, in Genesis Unbound why he thinks that that instead of the traditional reading, which is, no, 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 verse one is just describing what's about to happen in the rest of chapter one. Um, and, and then verse two then is the beginning of him crea- creating the heavens and the earth. He says that I, from what I read and understand, and I could be dead wrong, but um, that there are two reasons why he holds uh, that, that there are two separate events instead of one and that verse one is the creation of the universe. First of all, he says where if 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 verse 1 is just god kind of announcing this is what i'm about to do uh and then in verse 2 the, he begins creating but we already have an earth that is created and uh, and we have water that covers and darkness that covers the surface of the deep um that wars against a very important um, not only Jewish, but Christian idea that God created out of nothing, that the universe isn't eternal, that God, God's the only thing that is eternal. The universe isn't eternal. And that, that God's creation is different from humanity's kind of creating because God can create out of nothing. And, um and so Sailhammer's point is, well, look, if you say in, in chapter one, verse one, That, that, that verse, God created the heavens and the earth is just announcing what's about to happen. And then verse two, while the earth is formless and void, then that sort of erodes the idea that God created out of nothing. Where'd the earth come from, uh, to begin with. So, so one argument is just kind of a common sense, like the better, the, the better reading, uh, which makes more sense of verse two is to simply say, well, in verse one, God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates the sky and the land. He creates. Uh, it's called a merism, according to my friend Jeff Volkmer. Heavens and earth is kind of like saying from A to Z and everything in between. It's like it's like extating the extremes of something. That means you've he's created everything. And then in chapter two, God does something different. He takes what's already been created and begins to fashion it specifically for the purpose of human habitation. Now, what Sailhammer is going to argue, and I'm not going to get into today is that what God is going to do over the next six days is that God is going to fashion the promised land for human habitation. So he's not talking because when you when you read God created the heavens and the earth, um, the word earth there doesn't mean globe, the word earth there means land. And, and Salhammer will give an account, for why it is that he actually thinks that what the text is saying is that God God has created the earth, but he's now going to take a piece of land and he's going to form that into a temple garden, uh, a temple with a garden. and He's going to place, he's going to make it fit for human habitation. So he's got to do something about darkness. He creates light and time and, and measuring time. He's got to do something about um the water, so he brings forth land and he calls forth animals and birds and to, to fill this particular land. And then he nestles the human being in there with the idea that they're to fill the earth and to and, and one scholar says almost to expand the borders of Eden. So Eden was the promised land. In fact, what Silhammer argues, which is totally fascinating to a Bible geek like me, is, is that 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 the Garden of Eden was was actually in the promised land. And so when Abram in Genesis 12 is called back, um, what the land that God promises him is actually where the Garden of Eden actually was. Um, and so the idea is that God creates the promised land for Adam and Eve. He calls that Eden. Then the, the our first parents sin, they're kicked out, they're exiled to the east. Uh, Abram, after generations, is called from the east to go back to the land, and uh, Salhammer and others argue that that land is actually where Eden was. And although we don't see it as Eden because of the sin and death that has entered the world and the angel that is guarding the tree of life and, you know, however you take that. But but it's a fascinating idea that, that what the next six days are going to be about is that these are six literal 24-hour periods where God isn't isn't creating the universe, but he's actually taking what he's created and he's fashioning it. To make, it, to make it fit for human habitation. And he's doing it along temple lines. He's doing it the way that, that ancient temples were made, dedicated uh, at the center of ancient temples would be a garden. Um, and, and so uh, it's absolutely fascinating. If I lost you, I'm so sorry. I just had to geek out a moment for how cool this is because the idea would be that God created Adam and Eve for the, the Garden of Eden. They're exiled from Eden. And then Abram is brought back to that same piece of land. That same piece of land that's fought over today was actually the place where God intended human beings uh, to serve as priests and workers and co-regents in the administration of creation under God's good authority. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating, but that doesn't deal with Sailhammer's main point, which is, okay, these are two events. Now, his first reason for thinking these are two events is that, listen, if this is all one event, then where the heck's the Earth come from? Why do we start with the Earth was formless and void um when it doesn't give us any indication of God creating the earth? If you just started if you just started in chapter one, verse two as the creation account, then you would think the Earth was already there, and so so that that's not going to work theologically. The second reason he gives, and this this one, if you thought the stuff I just covered was a bit thick. This is um, even more thick. So I'll do my best. But, you know, if if I don't convey it well enough, read read his book. He's also got another book that I love called The um, Pentateuch is Narrative. Pentateuch is a way that Christians refer to the first five books of the Bible, what the Jews call the Torah. Uh, anyway, check those out. But here's the second reason he gives. why Why Genesis 1 is one whole event... And Genesis two is a different event, or Genesis um, <laughs> Genesis one one is one event. Genesis one two is a separate event. All right, the the word that that we translate in the beginning um, is 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 one word. It includes the word rechit, and it's literally spelled reshit. So um, it's pronounced rechit, evidently, and um, it is a very ambiguous. Term, um, it's a way now, and and this man, this is so stinking important. It is a way of speaking, um, of a period of time before something that we're interested in happens. Um, uh, Tim Mackey defines it like this Rashit is a way of talking about an undetermined period of time in the past where something important took place, but now we want to get the story going. So, so now we're going to count something, but before we start counting, there was something that happened, and we call that in the beginning. Most of us, when we hear the word beginning, we think starting point. Like there was nothing before the beginning, that's why it's called the beginning, but rashid doesn't mean that. Reshit, because there are other Hebrew words that could mean like the first thing God did was create the universe. This, reshit here, when we talk about in the beginning, first of all, it's fascinating because in Hebrew, there is no uh, definite article. And so you you have literally, it's rendered in beginning or at the head of. And um, so there's, we, in English, we supply the the in the beginning, as if they were just one, whereas "reshit" can mean beginning, not as the start of a sequence, but rather as the period of time before a sequence starts. So, <laughs> I know this is so crazy, and I'm so sorry. Um, here's the idea that that the the beginning can refer to an extended period of time. Before the thing that we're interested in and counting begins, so it's kind of like pregnancy, all right? We don't count. We count the person's birthday uh, on the day they are born. When when we would say metaphysically they exist before that, correct? Uh, whether you know, and I don't want to get into big trimester debates, but but let's say that you're a thing from conception to birth like you are uh, you a are, you are human something, you are a human person, however you want to describe it, I don't want to get into that whole debate, but just I want to kind of give an example of Rashid. That nine month time that you are in utero would be called the beginning in, in biblical terms using Rashid. Um we, we don't start counting until you are born and then we start counting forward but that that period of time before we start counting would be reshit. It would be the beginning um uh, another example that Salhammer uses is that um, Hebrew kings um th- their the dates of their reign uh, in the Old Testament were often reckoned from the beginning of the the beginning of the Hebrew year so if you uh took office like six months before the beginning of the Hebrew year, the duration of your reign was calculated only from the beginning of the Hebrew year forward. And the part where you were reigning and you were actually king six months before the beginning of the new year, that was called the beginning or the early years of your reign. Job, in the book of Job, Job's Prior life, before all of this tragedy comes upon him, was called the beginning, the early part of Job's life. It was the Reshit. So it doesn't mean like a singular point in time. See, we hear beginning, we think, boom, there was a singular point in time, there was nothing prior to that, and then bam, everything happens. In the beginning, Reshit in the Old Testament is often used to describe a long period of time. That took place before the thing we're interested in happened and the thing we're counting now is happening. So you're in utero for nine months, but, uh, but, but we don't start counting your life until you are born. So in Hebrew, uh, in the Hebrew language, you would call that early part reshit. That would be in the beginning. That would be your early life right? That would be like the early part of a king's reign that's not counted, but the king is still actually reigning and ruling. Now, I hope, my lord, I hope this is beginning to make sense. Um, uh, Sailhammer says, uh, uh refers to an extended yet indeterminate period of time, not a specific moment. It is a block of time which precedes an extended series, series of time periods. So, what he's saying is when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, his first argument is that, no, 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 these are two separate events. God is actually creating in chapter 1, verse 1. So that when we get to chapter 1, verse 2, and there's the earth, well, that's already been created in verse 1. It's a separate event. And one argument he gives for this is the meaning of the word beginning. In English, it's in the beginning, and that just reinforces to our English mind that that was a moment in time, whereas reshit, as it's used uh, in the Old Testament, actually refers to a block of time that happened before the thing we're interested in happened. And very often what will happen is reshit will be used to summarize uh, uh, something that happened and then we will count in a series the thing we're interested in talking about. So in the Genesis narrative, Reshit is used to just describe the creation of the universe. It tells us nothing about how it was done. It tells us nothing about when it was done. And it tells us nothing about how long it took to be done. So all of the debates we have about the age of the universe, and is it 4,000 or 6,000 or billions of years old, the author tells us nothing, nothing at all about any of this. We, we don't know. It doesn't say anything about how God did it or how long he took to do it. All of these massive, like, like faith, um, destroying debates. The, the the text isn't even answering. That's why this is so important. We have no idea how he created the heavens and the earth. We have no idea. None. The, the, the author isn't interested in that. The author is interested in the numeric sequence that's coming. This numeric sequence of seven, that and, and again, this is a separate argument, but that according to Sailhammer is going to describe... Uh, the taking of the land and making it fit for human habitation and then nestling humans in there and inviting them to work and rest in the same pattern that God himself displayed. And so if that's how you understand Genesis 1, then all of the cosmological and evolutionary debates we have uh, are, are absolutely pointless, not because they're not important, but because the author has no interest in telling us anything about how this took place. All the author says is in the beginning, in beginning, right at the head, before God started creating, the heavens and the earth were created. Now the earth was formless and void. And now we're going to talk about the, And earth means land in this instance. And so, so to me, this is absolutely, absolutely mind blowing because like I said, as I grew up, one of the biggest threats to faith was evolution. And, um, and so, you know, you, you just had massive amounts of how does Genesis 1 fit into modern cosmology? And the assumption was that Genesis 1 was giving cosmology. Um, when in, in if Sailhammer's right, what Genesis 1 is doing is it's just announcing that there is one God and this one God created the universe. And then this one God out of the universe that God created decided to create image bearers. And to do that, he fashioned a place for them to live, specifically designed for them, uh, for their habitation. And so there were animals and there were plants and there the darkness had to be dealt with, so there was light. And then the water had to be dealt with, so there was land. And 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 I mean, it, it makes total sense then that when we go to Genesis, what we're not doing is we're reading about um, an ancient cosmological account. What we're reading instead is... Um, an account about wh- who God is, why, the, why why it is that we operate in a six-day work week, one-day Sabbath cycle, and then the fact that God created this specific land for all humanity, um, that the promised land given to Israel uh, was the original garden that was given to the first humans. and um, And when the Bible ends with a new heavens and a new earth, in um, a new city, Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to rest on the earth, well, the idea is that 's where it rests that god God now just goes that the end of the world um is is very much like the beginning of the world, and that that instead of a garden now there 'll be a city and um and God will dwell with with his people just like he always intended to so it 's fascinating and i don 't know if it 's fascinating to you <laughs> it 's fascinating to me um how that one word can, can reframe massive, massive debates. Now, there are people, of course, that disagree with Salehammer and understand this in a different way. I just wanted to present his side of things because it was so revealing to me and uh, absolutely fascinating to, uh, to think about. And if he's right, it completely reframes so many of the science, science debates uh, that we have around uh, the idea of faith. So, for those of you who are students in the sciences, for those of you who are science scientists or science teachers uh, and you feel this fundamental conflict, um, you know I just want to say well there 's actually a way to understand this where these things don 't conflict at all and um, and I think that's beautiful uh, so anyway, food for thought today, you guys are always always amazing thank you for for emailing questions I have so many to answer but the the um, Uh, Our website is um, voxpodcast.com. The email is hello at voxpodcast.com. We're in the middle of a revelation series that we're doing as a reward to some of our Patreon supporters. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it is a way to financially support um, creators. And that can be art, that can be writing, that can be podcasting. Um, we, uh, you get rewards for various levels of participation. And for, for one, we're doing the book of revelation, which is absolutely fascinating in its own right. But these are people that are very committed to seeing this podcast continue. And so, so grateful for their support. If you want to join them, you can go on to patreon.com and uh, look up the Vox podcast or Mike Erie. Anyway, brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you and may he give you peace in these days. Thank you so very much.